This is 89.9 WWNO. I'm Janae Pierre, and it's time for All Things New Orleans. On today's show, we'll discuss an exhibit called Force From Home, presented by Doctors Without Borders. Then, Jessica Rosegard checks in with Cityscapes columnist Richard Campanella. And later, we'll chat with Natasha Harris, saxophonist for the original Panettes Brass Band. That's all coming up on All Things New Orleans. Stay with us. Doctors Without Borders presents Forced From Home, an interactive exhibit that takes visitors behind the global refugee crisis. Doctors Without Borders provides vital medical assistance to refugees and displaced people around the world. Joining me now is Doctors Without Borders volunteer, Dr. Peter Reno. Dr. Reno, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us more about the mission of Doctors Without Borders. Well, Doctors Without Borders was formed in the early 70s, and it started out as a humanitarian uh, medical aid service mission. But the other uh, part of uh, aspect of its mission is also what's called bearing witness. So going into conflict areas, areas where people are under duress, and bringing back information about that situation so those people's situation and their um, plight is not ignored by the world. Mm-hmm. And um, that mission is something you truly stand by and has led you to become a volunteer. Tell us, how long have you been volunteering with Doctors Without Borders? I've been volunteering with them for more than 15 years now. It oh, started wow. out, I would do uh, missions as a doctor, uh, being there for six to eight months. Mm-hmm. I did several of those, in, place, in mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, in Chad, and in the Congo. And then I became attached to the emergency desk, where I was the doctor on call for the emergency desk working out of Paris. So they would send us into new situations, either conflicts or natural disasters. We would do assessment of what the needs were, whether it was food and water, whether it was shelter, whether it was medical care, and then start to set up the projects that we would be um, maintaining. Wow, huge projects with a huge cause. Let's talk a bit more about the time when you traveled to the Central African Republic. Tell us about that assignment. Well, uh, at this point, I work part-time at Tulane University, and mm-hmm. then I have several months every year where I'm free to go overseas with Doctors Without Borders. And they contacted me. They needed me to go to the Central African Republic to work as the medical coordinator for the project. We were based in the capital. We ran the major orthopedic hospital in the capital, as well as we had a clinic for victims of sexual violence, as well as outpatient clinics for just regular medical care. Then we ran uh, three separate hospitals in different parts of the country, one to the north, one to the west, and one to the far east of the country. And also one of the big parts of our uh, mission was uh, assuring HIV care for many of the people. You're saying many people, but I do want to paint the picture here about how many people. The mission in Central African Republic has been going on for almost 20 years, so I'd say it's hundreds of thousands of people by now. And these are people that were displaced, correct? Some were displaced. Some were also in local situations in Central African Republic that uh, it was difficult for the government to assure adequate medical care for many of these people. It's a question of supplies, it's a question of trained personnel, and it's a question of being able to get the medical care and all the supplies out to these different areas, which are very much in the periphery of Central African Republic. Now, that reality is being shared in the exhibit Forced from Home, which is currently in New Orleans. Tell us more about this traveling exhibition. Well, it's a traveling exhibit, and it's mostly to raise awareness of the global refugee crisis. At this moment, there are over 65 million displaced people in the world. 
which is the highest number since World War II. And these include people who are internally displaced, people who are seeking asylum or refuge in another country, and also people who are in refugee camps because they're fleeing conflict situations. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about people coming from Syria. We're talking about people coming from Honduras up into Mexico. We're talking about a lot of the Middle Eastern refugees going into Greece, trying to get into um, Europe. And we're also talking about the uh, Myanmar Rohingya population that is taking refuge in Bangladesh. Right. Now, you mentioned that this exhibit attempts to raise public awareness about the more than 65 million people displaced in the world. But how is that being done through this exhibit? Is it only through documentaries? It's mostly showing it's showing photographs and also giving information. It's also uh, highlighting different projects that uh, Doctors Without Borders is sustaining in these refugee situations. We also show some of the tools we use, such as water testing kits, water purification systems, the screening tools we use for malnutrition, which is a big problem, especially among displaced children. Uh, rapid tests for malaria, just some of the tools to make it a little more vivid for people. But one of the biggest parts of the exhibit is what's our virtual reality viewing stations. Mm -hmm. And in that, there are videos or films that have been taken inside the refugee camp. One can wear the virtual reality headset, and it allows you a chance to actually see what it's like to be inside a a refugee camp. And there's uh, four or five different situations, one of which is in South Sudan, one of which is in a camp in Mexico, one of which is in Tanzania, I believe, and one I think is in uh, northern Iraq. And the great part about these films is that it's in a 360-degree view. So while you're wearing the headset, you can actually turn around. You can be watching a food truck being unloaded in a refugee camp and then turn around and see the crowds of people who are still waiting to get their distribution. Wow. So it's a very vivid experience. Uh, it can be unsettling at times because you're just really you're seeing what it's like to be in a refugee camp. You have the mud at your feet. You have the, the makeshift shelters that people are living in, and you see the hordes of people who are in the situation. And this is all set in a self-contained mobile trailer, right? Yes, it is. It's about the size of, a, of an RV. It's towed behind a pickup truck. It's gone from city to city in the United States. I think that they were just in Texas. They're here in New Orleans for the week, and I think next week they'll be in Alabama. So what do they do is they go and we set up just exhibition sites in each city, hoping to get access to in universities or near libraries, just to try to give access to people to come and see this information. Now, you just mentioned that this is a traveling exhibit and uh, it's going around the South this spring. But what's next for you and Doctors Without Borders? Well, the, the arrangement I have is that I work part-time for Tulane University at, at the medical school. And then every year I have several months that I can go overseas. And a lot of American doctors have set up arrangements like this where we have a job here in the States, but then we have the amount of time each year that's consecrated to working with Doctors Without Borders. It's a great adventure for me every time I go. You go to places that you've never, you never would go to otherwise, and you're involved in situations that you would not be part of otherwise. And I think also it's a way of dealing with some of the great problems of the world. We can't solve every problem, but at least we can be part of the solution. So for me, it's a great need and it's a great satisfaction for me to be part of this solution and to be able to participate in these solutions. That was Dr. Peter Reno, volunteer with Doctors Without Borders. Thanks for joining me today and thanks for what you do. Thank you. I enjoy talking with you. The Force from Home exhibit will be on view at Loyola University's Peace Quad this Friday. To learn more about this traveling exhibit, visit forcedfromhome.com.
Did you know that New Orleans' lakefront exists as we know it today because of a major land reclamation project? WWNO's Jessica Rosegard sat down with Richard Campanella, geographer with the Tulane School of Architecture and columnist for NOLA.com, The Times-Picayune, to talk about the development of Lake Pontchartrain's southern shore. Richard, we're talking about New Orleans lakefront, which did not always exist as we know it today, developed with restaurants, shopping centers, and neighborhoods. And of course, to understand the present day situation, we need to go back a few centuries. So tell me, what was Lake Pontchartrain's southern shore like in the 1800s? Well, first of all, we have to keep in mind that Lake Pontchartrain is a bay. So imagine any other bay along the Louisiana coast. It was marshy. It did not build a natural levee simply because these brackish waters did not deliver sediment the the way the river delivered sediment. And it didn't have an artificial levee until much later. So it would have been a tidally influenced grassy marsh. Uh, It would not have been swamp because the salt water would have prevented that. What was the original use for the lakefront? You know, historically, the Lake Pontchartrain shore was simultaneously important yet removed from the lives of most New Orleanians. Uh, It was hard to get to. It was marshy. The few people who lived out there lived on camps raised up on stilts. People would go out there for day trips. Uh, It was a popular bathing and recreational location. And it was also, it also had a workforce um, in that you have all these barges and steamboats coming in from across the lake, raw materials coming in from the Piney Woods, from the Manchac Swamp, passengers coming in from Mobile and Biloxi. And so uh, West End, Spanish Fort, and particularly Port Pontchartrain, which is Milburg, had these little uh, you know, work-a-day workforces uh, bringing in this cargo. You know, these were isolated little communities accommodating the economic needs of the city while being uh, spatially removed from it. Someone decided to build a levee along the lakefront. The first idea to uh, build a levee along the lakefront comes rather early. It's in the early 1870s. Uh, And it came from city surveyor W.H. Bell, who had the idea of instead of just building an earthen embankment to prevent lake water from coming into these uh, future-to-be-developed areas, why not go further and build sort of a, a broad plateau a levee with high land uh, expansively, uh, and you could create neighborhoods and amenities and parks, and he even designed lagoons and canals through it. You say that uh, this vision of Bell's was ahead of his time. It was ahead of his time because there really uh, weren't enough folks living in present-day Lakeview and Chantilly to call for that sort of uh, flood protection. This begins to change when the drainage system is installed, starting in 1895. Um, And the drainage system lowers the water tables of those swampy neighborhoods and enables them to convert into valuable real estate by the early 1900s. So you have the very beginnings of expansion off the Metairie Gentilly Ridge by 1910, 1912. There's new California bungalows being built. And then the great storm of 1915 hits, uh, and some of those areas are flooded. This forces the Orleans Parish Levy Board and other authorities to try to um, revisit flood protection for these new neighborhoods. And they came upon Bell's 1871 idea and decided to go through with a modernized version of that. So in 1921, the uh, Levy Board gets 
permission from the state to uh, to move forward with a major, what they call a land reclamation project. And it gains momentum when, when Colonel Marcel Garceau uh, becomes the chief engineer of the Orleans Parish Levy Board. And in 1925, Garceau unveils this really radical plan that stuns New Orleanians. Instead of just a levy, what he proposes is essentially Bell's vision to indeed build a levee uh, as kind of a bulkhead 3,000 to 4,000 feet off the original Lake Pontchartrain shore, and then pump in sediments excavated from the bottom of Lake Pontchartrain just beyond that bulkhead and direct it as a slurry into that coffer dam therein, like a big bathtub. So that coffer dam starts to fill with mud, the water is extracted from it, and it starts to convert brackish water into land, uh, to the point that it's as high as the bulkhead. So they raise the bulkhead, pump in more sediment, that raises the land, they raise the bulkhead again repeatedly between 1926 and 1930. So this is known as the Lakefront Improvement Project, uh, and it ends up converting about 2,000 acres of water into high, dry, valuable real estate, both creating flood protection as well as recreational and, and residential land. And so successful was it that almost as an afterthought, an airport was added to it. Uh, this is the golden age of aviation. New Orleans really didn't have uh, a decent airfield at that time. And this was a perfect place to create this peninsula into the lake. You have these open flying lines, uh, not creating any neighborhood nuisances. It was expandable. And so uh, Shushan Airport, later Lakefront Airport, is built along with the very representative Art Deco terminal that is still there today. So by 1934, um, the Lakefront project was complete, uh, and then it became a debate of what to do with this new land. And so a deal was worked out where some of it would be sold to private developers, and the rest, particularly along Lakeshore Drive, would be public space uh, open to all. How did the developed lakefront change the cityscape? The lakefront project is the single most radical reshaping of the New Orleans uh, metropolitan area. You could compare maps going back to colonial times. Uh, if you just look at the kind of the silhouette of the footprint of our geography, you have this remarkable extension into the lake. Uh, so it really stands alone in that regard. It did provide a great new residential recreational land. It provided good flood protection with one glaring exception. Those three outfall canals that were built starting in the 1870s but widened and incorporated into the 1895 drainage system that we still have today were ungated. And so as the interior land started to drop below sea level, we had this developing crises of storm surge being able to come up those ungated canals, and two of them, of course, ruptured during Katrina. Now, the fact that they were ungated had really nothing to do with the creation of the Lakefront Improvement Project, but it was a, a tragic um, oversight that um, ended up, while this whole project was primarily based on flood protection, it ended up flooding the city. That was WWNO's Jessica Rosegard with Richard Campanella, geographer with the Tulane School of Architecture and Cityscapes columnist for NOLA.com, The Times-Picayune. The world's only all-female brass band will be performing at this year's French Quarter Fest and the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Joining me now is saxophonist for the original Panettes Brass Band, Natasha Harris. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start by talking about the early years of the original Panettes Brass Band and how you ladies got started. The band actually started in 1991 at St. Mary's Academy. The band director at the time was uh, Jeffrey Herbert. And so all of the girls were pretty much in marching band, and I think some of them also did uh, concert band. And he started the band as a way, actually, for them to make some extra money. So when it started, it was it was a huge band. Um, and they had alternates, and they kind of sub people in and out. And, of course, time goes on, and we as women have family commitments, and people went off to college. So there were a couple of different iterations of the band. I mean, it kind of transformed over time. Right, the members changed. Yeah, members changed, and it's been a growing process, and, and we've evolved into what you see today. So that was 1991. Let's go to 2013. Uh, in 2013, you ladies became game changers when you won the Red Bull Street Kings Brass Band Blowout. Tell us about that experience. Oh, man, it was awesome. It was awesome. The feeling and the just sheer exhilaration that that you feel just from all of the people and it, they held the event under uh, the bridge on Claiborne Avenue okay and so that's a historic part of the Treme neighborhood and so much history and music has come from that neighborhood so just to be in that area and be able to feel the love from all of the people that came from all over to support it was like a mini Mardi Gras that day <laughs> um, and, and I don't think we were quite expecting what the turnout would be um, and, and we just went out, tried to prepare, expecting the best, and, and we were able to conquer the competition. And by conquering the competition, you forced Red Bull to change the name? Yeah, we got them to change the name. It's Red Bull Street Queens. Yeah. How does that <laughs> feel? I mean, going into a male-dominated field, right? How does that feel? It's always a challenge. And and I think um, I, I've, I've been in this music business for over 20 years now. And it's always a challenge because I've always been one of the lone female instrumentalist mm-hmm. you know there was some other female vocalist and pianist but to be a, a a female instrumentalist you know to have women playing drums and have women playing these brass horns you know it's always so different a lot of times people are still surprised when they see us to this day but but just that experience um I can't even describe the the, the excitement but I think sometimes we're underestimated because of the fact that we're women yeah. So, Natasha, tell us, when did you join the band? Were you were you a part of the original members uh, back in 91? I was not. I actually heard about the band while I was still in middle school. So they, they, were, they had already been established before I had even touched an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I had always, always had these ideas of having this all-female brass band. So one day I was having a conversation uh, with my uncle. I said, you know, I really want to start an all-female brass band. He was like, oh, that's already been done. You know, I kind of deflated my spirit a little, <laughs> a little bit. And he was like, yeah, those girls from St. Mary's. And so I had never heard him play, but I just had known that. And that was like in 1997, I believe, when he told me that. And fast forward 10 years later, um, I was actually a part of another band, and we were looking for a female to play tuba. So a friend of mine who went to St. Mary's said, oh, you know what? Still, they have the pinettes. I think they're still playing. I'll give you the contact information. Um, and so from that interaction, trying to get someone to come play too, but they said, well, look, we need someone to come play saxophone. Are you available? And it was for a Saturday and a Sunday gig. And after that, 
the rest is history. I've been a part of the band ever wow. since. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that was an on-the-spot audition. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. You know, I didn't know any of that music, didn't know any of the repertoire. Just, here, look, we have this gig. We, and at the time, the saxophone player was in, in Atlanta, I believe. So, you know, that was everybody was still going through those post-Katrina things where everyone was separated and living all over the country. And so, because she wasn't able to make it down for that gig, they were flying, they were driving from all over. I mean, so that was dedication. And so it had it not been for the dedication of those people at the time, I wouldn't have been afforded the opportunity that I have. Let's go to that moment. In 2005, of course, we know Hurricane Katrina happened um, and displaced a lot of people in the city, right? But what happened to the band after Katrina? Well, the core of the band pretty much went to Houston. So that's where the core was. And you had a few people, uh, I think one was in Boston, someone else was in Atlanta. So they were kind of spread out. So at the time, it was then this frenzy to have New Orleans music. And you, you saw this kind of regeneration of New Orleans music and this interest from people not only in the United States, but across the, the world, really, mm-hmm. and wanted to give the New Orleans musicians an opportunity. So when they could, they would come back down. Like I said, they would drive, they would fly. However they could give back to the city, they would for gigs. But in the very least, they did keep Jazz Fest. So that was the one constant gig that they, you know, that really carried the band through. And, and of course, they weren't able to take some of the gigs like the guys were and, and do these kind of tours because everybody was separated, they had kids, you know, so it's not as easy for us to pick up and, and travel and, and move and go when those opportunities present itself. So there are some opportunities that we do have to pass up just because of our family commitments and yeah. life commitments. Yeah. And you you mentioned those family commitments. I want to talk about that briefly, um, because as women, of course, your mothers, your your workers, you know, let's talk about how the band becomes a support system. We definitely are family. If I could say anything else and, and I've played with a ton of different musicians and and, and been a part of several different bands the one thing I can say that we are truly family we look at each other as sisters and we try to be supportive you know if there's there's a need to to babysit each other's kids while we're working our other jobs or sometimes parents have had to babysit other other band members kids whatever it is whatever it takes for us to still function and operate as a band we do that to help each other and so that part of it is something that I really enjoy about the original Pinettes that's something that I can say we really do enjoy each other and we laugh and, and, and joke and you know we have a good time at rehearsals we have a good time sometimes out of our normal gig. So we have a true bond and I think that really affects what you see on stage because that interaction and you know that that's real. Mm-hmm. It's it's not for show. It's it's not for just that performance. That bond and interaction and that chemistry that you see on stage is real because of our true love for each other. Now it's festival season here in New Orleans and you ladies have been consistently on the ticket for French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest, two of the biggest festivals in the city. How how does that feel? Oh, it feels awesome. And it's an honor, you know, and and we don't take it lightly. You know, we, we are really honored by the support that we continuously get from the music community and, and all of the supporters of music to constantly book us for different venues and shows. And of course, these major festivals, we really wear that as a badge of honor. It really has kept us going. It's the little things that we look forward to. You know, we can't just leave and pick up and go on a world tour. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's all of these small things that we can look forward to that we really can appreciate. Speaking of something uh, that's a small thing to appreciate, you ladies are uh, recurring guests 
at Bullets, right? Is, is that a, a place that we could catch you guys regularly? Every Friday, every Friday. If you have not been, trust me, you don't want to miss it. And, and I can't tell you what to expect because we don't know ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have um, other musicians that will pop in and come sit in with us sometimes. We have vocalists that will come in and, and sit in with us. And we have a very diverse following. And, you know, everybody just comes and has a good time. Every week we pretty much have visitors from out of town. So, um we recently were featured in an article for the New York Times. Oh, wow. And so that has brought some more attention mm-hmm. um, to those traveling to the city that, that come by and say, okay, I know there are bullets, and they come. And it's just a great time. Yeah. Great time. Every Friday, 9 o'clock, Bullet Sports Bar. Bringing the tourists to the 7th Ward. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. That was Natasha Harris, saxophonist for the original Panettes Brass Band. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You can catch the all-female brass band at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and at French Quarter Fest this Sunday. And that's it for this week's edition of All Things New Orleans. I'm Janae Pierre. Visit our website to check out previous shows and be sure to catch us next week right here on 89.9 WWNO New Orleans and 90.5 KTLN Thibodeau Homa. Thanks for joining us.